Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Jeff Norcross, in for Dave Miller. And we're coming to you live from the Literary Art Space in downtown Portland. Ada Limon's poetry just seems to be made for this time. Through plain and loving language, she finds joy and even sacredness in the mundane and everyday, like hearing the call of a sparrow or taking out the trash. She also beautifully captures the agitation and anxiety that comes with being a human right now when our leaders are telling us the emergency is over, but we're still feeling something like a threat. Ada Limon's poetry lives in that liminal space between serenity and grief and many other intersections. Ada Limon is the author of six books of poetry, and her latest is called The Hurting Kind, and she is the Poet Laureate of the United States. Ada Limon, welcome to Portland and welcome to Literary Arts. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like you to start with a poem that uh, gets at that idea of living in peace and nervousness at the same time in, in a space that you call between the ground and the feast. Oh, yeah. It's called Not the Saddest Thing in the World. Could you read that for me, please? I'd be honored. Thank you. Not the saddest thing in the world. All day I feel some itchiness around the collar, constriction of living. I write the date at the top of a letter, though no one has been writing the year lately. I write the year. Seems like a year you should write, huge and round and awful. In between my tasks, I find a dead fledgling, maybe dove, maybe don't know, to be honest, too embryonic, too see-through and we. I don't even mourn him, just all matter-of-fact-like, take the trowel, plant the limp body with a new hosta under the main feeder. Seems like a good place for a close-eyed thing, forever close-eyed, under a green plant in the ground, under the feast up above. Between the ground and the feast is where I live now. Before I bury him, I snap a photo and beg my brother and my husband to witness this nearly clear body. Once it has been witnessed and buried, I go about my day, which isn't ordinary exactly because nothing is ordinary now even when it is ordinary. Now something's breaking always on the skyline, falling over and over against the ground, sometimes unnoticed, sometimes covered up like sorrow, sometimes buried without even a song. I, I love that line. I, I go about my day, which isn't ordinary, exactly because nothing is ordinary. It's like everything has been elevated to something meaningful. How did you learn to be awestruck by such things? Hmm. I think I've always been interested in what deep attention does to the mind. So if I'm looking really closely at something or deeply paying attention to the moment, it, it becomes almost surreal. And I think there's a beauty in that. And I love living in that idea of wonder 
and the idea of awe and those moments that can open for us if we're really present and we think about what's happening in our bodies and our minds just even in this moment, it's exceptional and strange. I, being alive is really weird. <laughs> and I think about that a lot. Uh, the human experience is super bizarre. And um, I think even as a kid, I felt that. I was very aware of that. Um, and so I think it has always been something that, uh, that has kept me writing poetry, is coming back to, to those moments of the strangeness of the life experience. And how do you find yourself... Um, well, let me rephrase. How do you get yourself into those spaces in such a noisy world? Mm. I think it's, uh, it's very interesting right now to find moments of peace and quiet. Um, and if it's not sort of audio, then it's also the visual, right? Like there's no way to sort of get away from the phone screen or the computer screen or sounds. Um, even those of us who are like, I'm going to take a walk. They're like, and I'm also going to call my parents or I'm going to call a friend or I'm going to listen to a podcast. All of those things are great. But I also think it's really important to find those moments of silence and quiet, even if it's just for a minute. And I, Every time someone says to me that they have trouble writing, I think, when was the last time you were just quiet for a second? Because if you can find five minutes of quiet, the voice that comes to you, I call it the voice underneath the voice, that is where the poet lives. And it's a little hard to dig out sometimes amongst like the chaos and you know, the, the noisiness of the world. You've written, it's my secret work to be worthy of this infinite discourse where everything is interesting because you point it out and say, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> that is, is power, actually. But when you think about it, isn't that what poetry has always done, kind of elevated the obvious? Yeah, I think that it's always elevated the moment. It's elevated, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's making what we know strange again to us. It's allowing us to witness it in a new way. Um, and I think that so often we're taught that we have to kind of numb out to the world in order to get from one moment to the next, right? If we felt everything all the time, we would just be lying down on the floor and giving up. So I think there's a part of us that knows that in order to protect ourselves, we have to shut down some elements because we have to, you know, get from point A to point B. We have to go to work or we have to go to school or we have to do a project. You know, we have deadlines, we have obligations, um, we have to make a living, all of those things. And yet I feel like poetry turns on that part of us that recognizes that we are deeply feeling people and that we are actually really noticing and paying attention to the world, but that sometimes it's so hard to stop and do that because if we do, we'll recognize all of the grief that we're experiencing, some of the joy that we're experiencing, and that can be overwhelming. So poetry is a way of turning it on. Um, and it's a protected space for those feelings. Hmm. When did you first fall in love with language and, and who or what put you on the path to becoming a poet? Yeah, I always loved poetry, um, but I also loved songs. I always wrote songs when I was a kid. Um, 
I had a big Labrador named Dusty, and um, I would just uh, write songs and sing them to my dog. Um, and she, I think, uh, very much enjoyed them. Um, and, um, she didn't tell you otherwise. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, and then when I was in high school, I was 15, and there was a poem that was on a test. It was One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. And um, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this is a love poem. And it was extraordinary. And uh, I remember my high school English teacher, Mrs. Lale, um, was so surprised because I asked her if I could keep the test <laughs> so that I could keep the poem. And um, Elizabeth Bishop remains one of my favorite poets, poets to this day. She was also um, a poet laureate. Yeah. You, you grew up in English-speaking houses, mm-hmm. but your grandfather spoke Spanish. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any literal Spanish words in your poetry, but yeah. is that language in there in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's it's interesting because I knew uh, him. His Spanish was almost always in song um, <laughs> because he was a great singer. He had this really deep, beautiful voice, and um, so like the Spanish I recognize the most is always in song. Um, and he sang quite a bit, and uh, yeah, so I think it's it's in there, and it's a different kind of musicality. Um, but it's also in his way of. Um, I think the way that he sort of sang back to the world is part of what I'm doing, is singing back to the world. There's a, there's a poem in uh, your book, The Carrying. It's called, The Contract Says We'd Like the Conversations to be Bilingual. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, read that for us, please? Sure. I wrote this poem um, thinking about the difference between representation and tokenization. The contract says we'd like the conversation to be bilingual. When you come, bring your brownness so we can be sure to please the funders. Will you check this box? We're applying for a grant. Do you have any poems that speak to troubled teens? Bilingual is best. Would you like to come to dinner with the patrons and sip Patron? Will you tell us the stories that make us uncomfortable but not complicit? Don't read us the one where you are just like us, born to a greenhouse garden. Don't tell us how you picked tomatoes and ate them in the dirt, watching vultures pick apart another bird's bones in the road. Tell us the one about your father, stealing hubcaps, after a colleague said that's what his kind did. Tell us how I came to the meeting, wearing a poncho, and tried to sell the man his hubcaps back. Don't mention your father was a teacher spoke English, loved making beer, loved baseball. Tell us again about the poncho, the hubcaps, how he stole them, how he did the thing he was trying to prove he didn't do. You know, many organizations, um, and it has to be said, including the one that I work for, are on a path for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and safety. And that, that includes hearing some uncomfortable truths about racist expectations. Do you regularly feel like you're only allowed to tell certain stories about yourself? Yeah, I think that anytime anyone has an idea about me or what I should do or who I am or what I'm allowed to write about, my first thought is I want to do the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) And I just become all elbows about it. And as soon as someone is like, well, you are doing this and this is the art you make, I think, now, now I'm not going to make that art anymore. I'm going to do something entirely different. And I've always been that way. And um, I'm also very aware of like what is it 
to um, represent you know, my Mexican ancestry in a way that really cherishes and honors and upholds the legacy of my people, but at the same time makes room for that there's many different ways to be Latinx. Like there's many different ways to be Latina. Um, so that, you know, it, it's not just one thing. There is no, there's no uh, one way to be an artist in this world. And there's no one way to be, you know, a Latina in this world. And so I think I'm making space, hopefully, for all the different multiplicities of, of those identities. We're talking with U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Limon. Her latest collection of poems is called The Hurting Kind. Ada, I heard you say that you were raised by atheists. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that actually surprised me <laughs> because I, I feel in your poetry a reaching for the divine, yeah. whatever that is. So what? Are you uh, rebelling against your <laughs> upbringing a little bit? What's that like? No, I mean, I think that... Um, I think that there's a lot of different ways to talk and think and feel about the sacred. Um, and uh, my mother in particular really didn't believe in organized religion. Uh, she still doesn't. And so as a kid, um, that was not part of our conversation. But we talked deeply about witnessing the world, what it was to be connected to things, what it was to find a sense of wholeness. Um, within the natural world to have a feeling like there was something larger at play and that could be the planet. Um, You know, that could literally be the mysteries of nature. Um, And it could be the fact that we are part of nature. And all of that was just as sacred um, as any of the sacred texts, right? So that was a big part of it. Um, so I think that if there is a searching in my work, um, it's not for an organized religion or religion in general, but as a way of finding wholeness and making sense out of the deep question of our own mortality and how one lives on this planet to their fullest and how one looks after one another and themselves at a time when... Um, it's not just chaos we're up against, but also our own internal struggles. So I think there's always that, um, those questions there, that curiosity. And I think one of the best things that my mother taught me was that to live in the questions can be beautiful. Um, to not always have to surrender to someone else's answers can be beautiful. If anybody has, has questions for Ada Limon, I would uh, love to be able to uh, entertain a few of them. And if you could introduce yourself to us and uh, ask your question, please. So I have a quote from you from a while ago, and it reads, quote, I suppose in my life I have never done things the ordinary way. I'm either deep in the bottom of the well or nowhere near the water, unquote. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how your sensibilities and your sensitivities are informed by, by this. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I don't remember saying that, but I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that for me, there's a, 
I'm very aware of um, having always felt a little bit different. Um, and I think that I witness things in a different way. And sometimes uh, it has disturbed me. I pay like a deep attention can be also hard, right? Because it means you're witnessing everything all at once. And if we felt, like I said, everything all at once, it can be really intense. And so I have felt a a life of intensity. Um, And so I think that what I have done with that and how I have worked with that is to create some equanimity and space around that intensity so that actually that deep attention and that deep feeling has become a gift instead of something I have to push against. And I think when I was younger, it was overwhelming, and now I've added more space around it so I can appreciate that as opposed to feel like it's um, holding me in some kind of trap of of high-energy emotion. We have a class from uh, Woodburn High School who's joined us here today, so glad to hear a question. Uh, what's your name, hon? Uh, my name is Belen Mendoza, and I guess my question is, growing up as a person of color, you have these certain expectations to follow um, a more traditional um, career. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is, how did you choose to follow your career, or what were your parents' thoughts on you following a career in literature? Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, I appreciate that question. Um, and I think that's very true. I know that um, my grandfather, when he came from Mexico, he's from he was from San Juan de los Lagos in Jalisco. And um, I don't think choosing art was an option for him, right? Um, and uh, he really chose a steady job. He worked for Con Edison. And, it, and I think that my father and all of his siblings were similar. Um, everyone was about finding that really steady job that would protect and preserve you know, their lives. And um, I think partly... I had the opportunity to expand expand that idea of, of what the options were because um, my mother was an artist. She was a painter. Um, and then I think the other part of it was the encouragement I had from my dad, who was my elementary school principal. <laughs> so, you know, he was in education his whole life, very serious about um, creating security. Um, I think that he really saw in me that it meant everything to me to explore the arts. And I really, my mother and my stepfather were all in. I had to win over my dad a little bit, but honestly, I think he saw how much it meant to me. And he also knew that I knew there was no safety net. I wasn't someone who could fall back on money. (laughs) I wasn't someone who, like, someone was going to be like, oh, you can't make your rent. Here's this. You know, I, I, he knew that I was going to do my best to also have other jobs, you know, and, um, and I think he trusted me with that. Um, and so uh, I feel really grateful that they trust me with that. But it wasn't without convincing and um, proving myself in, in many ways, you know, being that straight-A student, being the person that made sure that I got on the dean's list so I could maintain my scholarship all of those things were really important. And I think in that way, um, the freedom of being an artist also uh, came with the responsibilities of knowing how to take care of myself, 
and knowing how to pay my rent and make a living. And I think actually money is something that artists don't talk about enough. Um, but I think there's a way to do it and to find the balance of making art and finding security. And I think that some of us, especially those of us who are first generation or second generation, you know, have to find that way. You spoke about the support that you had from your mother and your father, but also stepmother, stepfather. And yeah. um, I, like you, had two sets of parents. Yeah. And it took me a little while to recognize the gift that that was. Mm. And in fact, you have, you have a poem that speaks to that. It's called Joint Custody. Do you yeah. mind reading, please? I would love to. Joint Custody. Why did I never see it for what it was? Abundance. Two families, two different kitchen tables, two sets of rules, two creeks, two highways, two step-parents with their fish tanks or eight tracks or cigarette smoke or expertise in recipes or reading skills. I cannot reverse it. The record scratched and stopping to that original chaotic track. But let me say, I was taken back and forth on Sundays, and it was not easy but I was loved each place. And so I have two brains now, two entirely different brains, the one that always misses where I'm not and the one that is so relieved to finally be home. What do you mean by two brains? I think that I've recognized in my life, it's not unlike uh, code switching or switching languages or you know, depending on who you're talking to, I had two families, and so I knew how to walk into one family and adjust to the rules and walk into another family and adjust to the rules. And I actually think that has given me a huge gift on how to be in different communities, on how to be flexible. Um, and I don't think I recognized that as a skill until years and years later, that that was actually something that was part of made me who I am. Um, was that I could I could be in this sort of abundance of parenting and watch this set of parents do it this way and watch this set of parents do it this way and be without judgment but just be within that and move fluidly. And I actually think um, there was a lot of lessons that were learned from that that have made me who I am. An abundance of parenting. It, <laughs> it was overwhelming at times, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, another question? I'm Charles Sanderson, and I have the just amazing pleasure to work with brilliant, awe-inspiring students down in Woodburn, Oregon. Um, and despite the vast majority being multilingual, because of white supremacy and colonization, they often come to me um, with really damaged linguistic self-esteem. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what would you be strategies to help repair mm -hmm. linguistic and literary self-esteem and then fortify it? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I think one of the things that we forget is that the way that we come into this world, like all of like our language, our musicality is incredible. Like it really is. And if you think about um, the different languages, if you think about Spanish, okay, Spanish is also, uh, you know, a colonizing language, right? And if you think about English, it's a colonizing language. Um, when I was in Mexico recently, um, on stage with me was a poet who read in Nahuatl, a poet who read um, in Puripecha. I, and it, to hear the original native languages of Mexico was incredible for me. 
But it reminded me that that kind of musicality that we have, no matter what, if it feels broken to you, it's also your own music. And that that kind of switching in between, I, I feel like there's a way to praise that. Um, I think about a lot in um, bilingual texts now. There's so many great poets. I think about Eduardo Sicoral, Natalie Diaz, who are working and switching back and forth um, so that it's very seamless um, between languages. So I think that is part of it, exposing them to that kind of work, to recognizing that it's not broken. It's actually a singular music um, that can make them not only better readers but better writers because they live in two worlds, you know, and maybe sometimes even more worlds than that. And uh, I don't know, for me, it's taken me a long time to understand that all of that can be actual, not just gifts, but tools that um, can improve your own ability to actually witness the world because a lot of people can only see things one way. And many of us can see things many different ways. And that's, that's a superpower. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck at how you live in the convergence of lots of different worlds, you know, English and Spanish, like mm-hmm. we spoke. But this family and that family, uh, city and country. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you find interesting in these spaces that, where things converge? Yeah. I mean, I find it always all of like anything that's sort of the between spaces. That feels to me where all of the interesting stuff happens, right? <laughs> it's like everything that's uh, the cracks between things, the um, where nature collides with human existence. Um, all of those things to me is where we get to witness um, our effect on the world and where we get to witness also where two things kind of come together and have a conversation. And sometimes it's tough conversation, and sometimes it's a good conversation. Um, but I think often, you know, when I lived in New York City, I remember following this little girl who was kept asking her dad, you know, what kind of bird is that? And he'd say a pigeon, and she'd be like, what kind of bird is that? And he'd say, it's a pigeon. And what kind of bird is that? And he'd say, it's a pigeon. And she just said, oh, when am I ever going to see a real bird? <laughs> and I thought, no, I was like, poor pigeons. Like, you know, and then, you, and then I kept thinking about pigeons where, you know, they're, they were cliff dwellers. Like, that's how we, they can, like, like, they can exist in these cities and stand on these high rises. Like, that's an amazing skill. And so, I don't know. I feel like I've always been someone who gets excited about how we survive together. And I think that, you know, as the climate crisis continues, we're going to have to think of ways that we survive together more and more and envision a different future. And I don't know. I think we need to, um, we need to think about those spaces of collision and, um, and be really bearing witness to them in a true way. We're going to talk more after a break. We'll talk more about animals. We'll talk about childlessness. We'll talk about the pandemic. It's our conversation with Ada Limon at Literary Arts after a break. Stay with us. From Literary Arts in downtown Portland, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Jeff Norcross, and we're talking with U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Limon. She's written six books of poetry, one of which won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her latest collection is called The Hurting Kind. And Ada, I meant, uh, we talked about your city and country lives a little bit before the break. You lived in New York. Now you live in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. How did that change of scene affect your poetry? Oh, I mean, uh, hugely so. Uh, I think that... Uh, 
I loved living in New York, um, but I hadn't realized how much it was all about the hustle culture, um, and uh, to live, you know, in, to live in a very little apartment <laughs> in Brooklyn. Talk uh, about trying to find quiet. Yeah, Good luck. And, I, and I had to work all the time, yeah. and I just worked all the time. And I kept thinking, like, how can I not get ahead? Like, how come I don't have more money in the bank, you know? And uh, and so that was, like, that was really difficult. And so I love New York, but leaving it for a place that allowed me a little more space, a little more ease, uh, was uh, was actually a really great decision. Um, and so I think what, uh, what that change of scenery did for me, really, was allowed me more space to write, um, allowed me more quiet. And I'm forever grateful for that. And uh, the book Bright Dead Things really came out of that um, that transition. Yeah, there are a lot of animals in your poetry, including and especially horses. Yeah, is that a product of living in Kentucky? <laughs> yeah, everyone always says like, "What are the what are the horses a metaphor for?" And I'm like, "No, they're they're actual horses." <laughs> um, I live in Kentucky, and so I look out the window and I see horses. Um, also, my mother was a caretaker on a 40 acre horse ranch growing up. Um, they were all retired police horses from San Francisco, and she was the caretaker on the ranch. And um, so, uh, you know, I grew up around horses, and um, and yeah, they're they're to me a very mysterious animal, and they're sort of unlike the kind of pet. You know, there's no no sort of dog or cat element to a horse. A horse is, feels like a wild thing, but will also kind of tell you what it needs. And there can be such a communion. So, yeah, there, I have a lot of um, poems about them. And I think a lot of it is because I feel like I could never know a horse truly. And that feels like people. Yeah. You, could never, you could never know a person truly either. You have a beautiful poem in The Hurting Kind that's about horses, but is clearly about something else. Mm. It's called Folding Season. Oh, yeah. Do you mind? Of course. Folding season. One. In the dew-saturated, foot-high blades of grass, we stand amongst a sea of foals, mare and foal, mare and foal. All over the soft hillside, there are twos, small duos ringing harmoniously in the cold, swallows diving in and out, their fabled forked tail, where the story says the fireball hit it as it flew to bring fire to humanity. Our friend, the Irishman, drives us in the gator to sit among them. Everywhere doubles of horses, still leaning on each other, still nuzzling and curious with each new image. Two. Two female horses, retired mares, separated by a sliding barn door, nose each other. Neither of them will get pregnant again. Their job is just to be a horse. Sometimes, though, they cling to one another, Find a friend, and all whine all night for the friend to be released. Through the gate, the noses touch, and you can almost hear, Are you okay? Are you okay? Three, I will never be a mother. That's all. That's the whole thought. I could say it returns to me watching the horses, which is true. But also, I could say that it came to me as the swallows circled us over and over, something about the myth of their tale, how generosity is punished by the gods. But isn't that going too far? I saw a mare with her foal 
and then many mares and many foals, and I thought simply, I will never be a mother. Four, one foal is a biter, and you must watch him as he bears his teeth and goes for the soft spot. He's brilliant, leggy, and comes right at me as if directed by some greater gravity, and I stand firm and put my hand out first, rub the long white marking on his forehead, silence his need for biting with affection. I love his selfishness, our selfishness, the two of us testing each other, swallows all around. Every now and then, his teeth come at me once again. He wants to teach me something, to get me where it hurts. I will never be a mother. You have unflinching poems about your inability to have children and your eventual embrace and acceptance of that life. And that resonates with me because I am in love with a woman who went on the same journey. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you talk about how your childlessness or maybe your child freedom, maybe that's yeah. how you look at it. How yeah. does that show up in your work? Yeah. Um, it's a, it, you know, it's a very interesting thing to start writing about um, because I, I think I had always envisioned, like many people do, that they will be parents. Um, and I thought that that was sort of my journey. Um, and then when it turned out not to be the case and we started to struggle um, and went through all the treatments and all of those things, even during the treatments, I started to question, I wonder what would happen if I was okay with, the, with, with not being a mother, you know? Which I think I ask myself a lot of things like that. Like, what would happen if I was just okay with myself? <laughs> what would that look like? Mm -hmm. what, would that, what would happen if I really allowed myself to be free in my own body and in my own mind? And I started to think about it, even in those treatments, that maybe I could be fine either way. And that was huge. And then when we decided to stop the treatments, um, that felt also like a power, like not continuing down that road um, any longer. And then it also felt like a choice, even though, of course, it, my husband will say, oh, it wasn't really a choice. But, uh, but in some ways, I feel like we, we could have gone further and decided not to. Um, and then I think also there's many different ways to be in the world. And one of the biggest things for me was being child-free has given me really a way of being an artist in a different way. I have much more time to write. I travel a ton. Um, my husband and I are, are, are really inseparable. We adore each other. Um, and I think that we have embraced being a family um, in a way that, uh, you know, is without the child at the center, but it's our love at the center. And I think there's a real beauty in that too. So I think that um, a lot of it is not dissimilar to what I was saying earlier about thinking about, you know, divorced parents or any of those things. It's like, what is the moment where you can flip the narrative and stop listening to what everyone else says or what everyone else wants you to be and start listening to what it is you really want and think of it as possibility instead of limitation? Well, maybe... 
the thing you really want to listen to is the birds <laughs> in the quietude of a house that doesn't have children in it. And you have a, you have a poem about that. Yeah. It's called Sparrow, What Did You Say? Sparrow, what did you say? A whole day without speaking. Rain, then sun, then rain again. A few plants in the ground. Newbie leaves tucked in black soil. And I think I'm good at this. This being alone in the world. The watching of things growing. This older me. The she in comfortable shoes and no time for dishes. The she who spent an hour trying to figure out what the bird with a three-note descending call is just a sparrow. What would I do with a kid here? Teach her to plant? Watch her like I do the lettuce leaves tenderly? Place her palms in the earth? Part her black hair like planting a seed? Or would I selfishly demand this day back, a full, untethered day, trying to figure out what bird was calling to me and why? That's, that's so beautiful. And so much of your poetry is just rich with restorative energies of the natural world, uh, and especially in, in a confusing and, and noisy and disconnected time. Where did you learn to love nature? Yeah, I think that um, I'm someone that has always really loved being alone, and I've loved being alone in nature. Um, and there was a there was a creek across from the street growing up um, called the Calabasas Creek, and uh, it was my sort of my place to be away from anyone, away from my older brother, um, away <laughs> from uh, away from my family, and I you know I adored them, but I, that really quiet secret space um, and I remember watching like the minnows and the fish and the little creek snails and thinking how amazing that there was this whole world this little world underneath the road and that everyone drove over the road and never knew about this world um, so I think for me it has always been a safe space if you're just tuning in, we're talking with poet laureate Ada Limon. We're in front of a, an audience at Literary Arts in downtown Portland. Uh, Ada, your poems are, are short, and uh, they're short enough that you can read all six of your books in one day if you wanted to. It's, it's something I'd I don't know. You'd have to recover from that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a binge. Um, why, why so short? Um, it's funny. I, I feel like for the most part... Um, you know, I think The Caring has some longer poems in it. I know um, there's some poems that are multiple pages, four or five pages. The Hurting Kind is, I think, seven pages. Um, but I think that poetry really benefits from a condensing of emotion and a condensing and crystallization of images. Um, and I also feel like there are times where poems are kind of endless. If you're really paying attention, you could just keep writing the, the poem forever. Um, and yet I love yeah. I love an opening and I love a closing. And so if I keep writing the poem forever, I don't get the pleasure of having an opening and a closing. And if you love endings like I do, you have to make poems that are short enough so that you can experience endings over and over and over again. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, I also on a very sort of logistical level, 
I love writing poems that people who are not poets will read. And um, that's a deeply personal thing, but I feel like if I can hand someone a poem and they can read it and experience it within one to two minutes and then walk away maybe having shifted something, even just a tiny little bit, that feels like a great pleasure. I heard you once say that everyone should read a poem a day. Yeah. One. Uh, is that a minimum recommended daily allowance, or should you just stop with one? <laughs> uh, at least one. Yeah. At least one. That's the required dose, I think, that the doctors recommend. <laughs> in, your, in your early book, um, Sharks in the Rivers, every section is prefaced by a line from a piece of music. Mm. What, what's the relationship between melody and music and poetry for you? Oh, yeah. I love music. Um, I I think in a you know, if if I had if I had many many more lives and maybe I do, um, I would I would love to be a musician. Um, I was in a band in, in Brooklyn for a while. That was actually we named ourselves after my first book. We were called Lucky Wreck, uh, mm-hmm. and I was the singer uh, and the songwriter. And um, what kind of music was it? It was sort of uh, I want to say f- like a folky. Singer, guitar, you know, I'm trying to think of the genre. I guess it would be like, yeah, folk folk music. Yeah. Um, alternative folk. And, um, and it, was, it, was just, it was such a joy. I loved doing it. Um, but I also think that one of my favorite things about poetry is that it's similar to music, right? It has, but if you think about making a song, you have all of the elements around you. You have the guitar, you have the piano, you have the bass line, you have you know, whatever instruments, and they are going to deepen the music. And then you have the melody, the harmony, you have all the voices working together. And with a poem, you have to make all the music yourself. And that is the way that you make a poem, is that it has to be complete. It's not waiting for music. It's not waiting for uh, the bass line. It's not waiting for someone to make it a song. It is its song. And so I love that part. I love that the actual lineation makes, you know, m- makes a, a metric, you know, element of music. I love that the line breaks or can be staccato or can be, you know, faster. Um, so I love all of that element of basically that the, the whole song has to be within the poem. And uh, I don't know. That's always been my my sort of uh, comparison between the two because as much as I love music, there is a real gift to, to making a song that's the whole poem all by yourself. Yeah. The, the second section of the book uh, starts with a line from a song from the high strung and the line is, I would leave it alone if I could leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Obsession, right? Yeah. And the first poem in that section flows from that nicely. It's called Crush. Oh, yeah. Could you read it? Oh, yeah. Has anyone here ever had a crush? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love crushes. I really do. They're dangerous, but they make really good poems. Um, they can make good poems. Crush. Maybe my limbs are made mostly for decoration. The way I feel about persimmons. You can't really eat them, or you wouldn't want to. 
If you grab the soft skin with your fist, it somehow feels funny, like you've been here before, and uncomfortable too, like you'd rather squish it between your teeth than patiently before spitting the soft parts back up to linger on the tongue like burnt sugar or guilt. For starters, it was all an accident. You cut the ripe branch, and a sort of light woke up underneath, and the inedible fruit grew dark and needy. Think crucial hanging. Think crayon orange. There is one low, leaning, heart-shaped globe left. And dearest, can you tell? I am trying to love you less. Uh, Who's that for? (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) I don't need names. I remember when I wrote that poem, I actually, it's one of a few poems that I wrote backwards, which was I walked into my apartment in Brooklyn and um, there was, uh, there were three persimmons in a bowl and um, there was one orange and I was laughing that there was sort of this, the color between them. And then I was thinking, oh, there's one, one left. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to build this poem backwards from that. And I had the phrase, dearest, can you tell? I'm trying to love you less. That brings up a great question, which is, um, where do you find inspiration? I mean, it, the, in a bowl of persimmons, in a mm-hmm. bird? I mean, is everything potentially a poem? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I really do think that everything is potentially a poem. I, I honestly think that um, if you're a poet or an artist of any kind, the biggest thing about our lives is that we just don't get bored. Um, we just don't get bored um, because everything is interesting. Everything, if you look at it close enough, if you talk to anyone deep enough, it's interesting. You know, like I, I always think about what it is to um, just stare at a little square of space for a while and see what happens to the mind and go, oh, wow, that's happening there. Oh, look at that crack in the floor. I wonder where that, you know, oh, that's, you know, all of these things. And I think that if you really, it begins to, um, like I said, make things strange again. And um, I much prefer that kind of strangeness and wonder to the numbness that it's easy to kind of adopt as we move through the world. Let's talk about the pandemic. Uh, it forced a lot of us to slow down and think about what we value. Was it a good time to be writing poetry? No. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I mean, I think that I, um, I think that poetry has always and hopefully will continue to be a lifeline for me. So poetry really helped me so much, uh, both reading it and writing it through the pandemic. But I think, um, like many of us, I was feeling really isolated. I was feeling really separated from my family. My whole family is on the West Coast. And, you know, here I was living in Kentucky and uh, not being able to drive over and see them or, um, or, and just worrying about everyone. I think that I had a lot of worry. And I think like many people, you know, I can write from sadness. I can write from having a crush. I can write from, you know, love poems. I can write, uh, f- you know, uh, happy poems, joyful, honoring. But if I'm really scared or anxious, that's actually a really, really hard place for me to write from. Um, so I had to kind of train myself to write again um, 
because honestly, the anxiety was kind of silencing me because I just kept thinking, what happens? What if I lose someone? What if, you know, and I kept thinking about everyone in the healthcare industry and it was um, hard to kind of get out of the self for a little while to, um, or get out of the brain, I guess, enough to, to pay attention to things. And once I started that and started looking at the birds again or started to look at, you know, the natural world around me, I could find my poems again. Hmm. How are you a different writer now, having gone through the experience? I think that I have a little bit more interest in the collective as opposed to the individual. Hmm. I think that I'm very interested in all the things that we all go through together. You know, what the human experience is. Like, even though we're all individuals and all of it, we all have different experiences, but there's all similarities. That that we're all going to, you know, experience loss. That we're all going to eventually die. That we're all going to um, experience sort of the the ebb and flows of life. All of those things. So I think I'm... um, I think that's a big part of it. I think the other part of it is that I'm very interested in in letting go of stories that aren't useful anymore. Um, I think it was a time for me to reflect on the fact that there are a lot of things that people have said to me that I just don't need anymore, that aren't true anymore, you know, um, in terms of my identity, in terms of who I am as an artist, in terms of, you know, what it is to be child-free. Mm-hmm. And I think that's huge. So, yeah, I think it was a, a big moment of reflection. Um, and, and I hope I, I hold those lessons dear and, and keep learning them. Uh, last question, and, and I'm sorry we only have about a minute for it, but it's forward-looking because you're part of this project with NASA. Uh, you're writing a poem that is going to be engraved on this probe that's going to fly by Jupiter and see if there's good conditions for life on one of its moons. And that's going to go up next year. What, what do you think that poem's going to be? <laughs> It's a pretty incredible thing yet yeah, just to think, yeah, I'm sending a poem to space. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually just, I finished the poem and they asked me if I would write it in my handwriting because they were going to engrave it on the Europa Clipper in my own handwriting. So this is what will be going to space um, on, in October of 2024. And it's just a huge honor. Oh, that's so cool. Ada Lumon, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you so much to Literary Arts for hosting us today. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. And our production staff includes Elizabeth Castillo, Roly Hernandez, Gemma DiCarlo, senior producer Allison Frost, and managing producer Shiraz Sadiq. Nalene Silva engineers the show. Our technical director is Stephen Cray. And our executive producer is Sage Van Wing. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m., Thank you very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Jeff Norcross. Read more poetry. Have a great day, everyone. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.